0: Hi, everyone. On this edition of Scouting for Growth, I will be joined by Guillaume Bonisson, founder and CEO of Quotec, a data provider and technology platform which aims to give access to the very best data sources to insurance practitioners. Um, and this includes executive decision makers, brokers, underwrite directories, and even data scientists. Guillaume has over 20 years of experience in insurance as both an underwriter and a senior executive. Throughout his career, Guillaume encountered one constant issue, the poor quality of data, which is made available to decision makers at all levels of the organizations may due you to legacy constraints. So during our discussion, we intend to cover three main themes. We are going to talk about Guillaume and how he's leveraging 30 years in underwriting. We will also discuss what it takes to drive underwriting excellence in the 21st century. And then we'll talk about how Guillaume is growing and scaling Quotech and the roadmap to success. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, do not forget to subscribe to it, rate it, and provide a comment here below. If there is a topic that you feel needs addressing, just send me a message using the channels also provided below. So let's welcome Gio. Good morning, Guillaume. Thank you very much for joining me on Scouting for Growth today.
1: Good morning, Sabine. Thank you very much for having me on your excellent podcast.
0: Thank you. You know, I love the fact that you have been in industry for a very long time. And now I've moved into entrepreneurship. And I would love for you to tell us who you are, what you do every (laughs) day and what got you from being a corporate professional to becoming an entrepreneur.
1: Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm quite unique, I think, in the London market. I think it's, uh, well, as you can tell from my quite strong accent, I'm a Frenchman. Uh, I've actually lived in the UK longer than I've lived in France. Uh, and uh, I'm a London market underwriter who is now a tech entrepreneur. Uh, I don't think there are oh. many of us who have done that. Um, so I, I started my career uh, in London back in 2000, uh, and I was a credit underwriter uh, for a company called Euler Hermes, based in Canary Wharf. Um, and credit underwriting was uh, relatively dull, uh, what I was doing. So I decided to move to a more operational role. Uh, so throughout my career, even from the beginning, I always had like these ideas that I was quite interested in not only the front office, the underwriting, but also the middle office and the back office. Um, And then after two years, I got an interview uh, with Hiscox. Now at the time, uh, I had absolutely no idea that Lloyds uh, of London was not Lloyds Bank. Uh, I thought the syndicate was a syndicat in French, which is a trade union. So I thought that the uh, employment agency wanted me to work for the trade union of Lloyd's Bank. Uh, So thankfully, Google already existed. Uh, Did a bit of googling and realized that you know Lloyd's was separate. He had an apostrophe, and um, so I moved to Hiscox in 2002 uh, in the operation team of the Lloyd's Syndicate. Uh and uh spending time in Lloyd's as a 22 year old uh is, was amazing. Uh I realized that actually underwriting could be really fun uh and really interesting. Uh so I moved to underwriting. I became a kidnap and ransom underwriter, uh, which is potentially the most interesting line uh of business that you can do. Uh definitely the one that starts conversation the most. Um, so I worked for Hiscox, uh, for 13 years. So having started in operation, moved to, um, kidnap and ransom on the writing in London. I set up the, uh, kidnap and ransom on the writing offices in Europe, went back to London, uh, insured against piracy because piracy was then very big. And then, uh, I was, um, singled out as a kind of, you know, leader of the future or as uh, corporate companies love having these programs and uh, moved around. So I did uh, personal accident, uh, property treaty, etc. Uh, and then I became a divisional head in charge of a division that was on the writing portfolios. So it was all of the lines of business that Hiscox uh, wasn't doing themselves that uh, we could give capacities to other companies to do. And that really opened my eyes of, you know, there are a lot of other companies that are very interesting. There are a lot of very different ways of doing underwriting. Uh, and a lot of people are really being very innovative about the way they look at underwriting, the products they want to insure, et cetera. So we worked on programs like uh, doing extended warranty for um. Uh, wind turbines and, you know, all, all that kind of things that were all uh, really, really interesting. Uh, and after uh, 13 years at East Cox, um, I thought it was time to move. And one of the companies that we were giving uh, capacity to uh, was a large London MGA called White Oak. Uh, and they offered me a job as the underwriting director. Uh, and I thought, um it was quite a big move at the time. As you said, you know, it was living the corporate world and the security of the corporate world. But I thought that was actually a very uh, interesting move because I would be exposed to a SME, you know, uh, White Oak at 35 employees. Uh, his cox at the time at 3000. Uh, and, uh, turnover of White Oak, I think was about nine million pounds. So, um, but it was really, really interesting to uh to do that move because it was moving away from the security of the corporate world where everything is basically done for you. I mean, you know, even things as simple as you want to do a business trip, you ask your Ph, you know, she books everything, there's a company that does that, you want to recruit someone, there's a whole process. Whereas in an SME, you have to do a lot for yourself. Uh and that was a fantastic lesson and a fantastic step in effect to then start my own company. I already think that had I started my own company from having worked for 13 years at Hiscox or 15 years in corporate, um, I would have really struggled uh, because I wouldn't have had that like that attitude of, you know, it doesn't really matter if it's not in my job description, I have to do it because if I don't do it, no one's gonna do it. And that's basically the summary of what an entrepreneur is. You know, one day you're negotiating uh, with your investors. The other day you're trying to find clients. Then you're uh, dealing with the lawyers. And then you're doing very mundane test, tasks like, um, you know, create control. Because if you don't do it, it's not going to be done. And it has to be done. So, um, so yeah, that was uh, my... Uh, long journey from uh, being a uh, on a work experience on the summer of 2000 uh, in a credit insurance company and then ending up uh, starting my own uh, tech firm in January 2020.
0: That's incredible. You know, I also um, fell into insurance, I often say, and um, I started my career after Erasmus um, Mm -hmm. in in Lloyd's market. And what was was interesting is they used to have um, executives to come to various universities and talk about uh, Lloyd's of London as a marketplace, which has so much diversity around the specialty risk they underwrote um, from satellite insurance to director and officer. And I ended up working for one of the top brokers at the time and uh, fell into, I would say, the, uh, I would say celebrity and fine art team where, you know, a lot of the underwriting was for specialty, you know, high net worth. And I was a lot of fun. Uh, and so you realize actually that uh, at the time that insurance is not just about home insurance, car insurance, uh, yeah. and travel, right? There is a lot of complexity in the underwriting and how the market works, how it gives lines, you know, how the market gives lines um, when they take the risk. They don't take always 100% of the risk. They take a chunk of it and then potentially sometime leave some of that risk to uh, the buyer. And so, Imagine I joined the market in 1997. So um, it was, you know, before 2000. Mm -hmm. uh, And um, a lot of, you know, walking, paper driven market, but a lot of energy at the time. I remember that energy, that buzz where you met people all the time. So it's as a relationship market, definitely as well. And then you end up staying, right? You realize because of the relationship and the um, camaraderie which exists in that market, you end up staying into insurance. So my, my next question to you, what did you learn to become, you know, a chief underwriting officer, somebody who owned the pen and made the decisions as an underwriter within Xcox and others uh, organization to join to help us understand what is a day in the life of an underwriter?
1: So the, the the biggest step uh, when you're an underwriter is um, is to get what is known as uh, the scratch. So the scratch is uh, or the pen, depending on the company you uh, you work for, and is when you basically have finished your formal training uh, and uh, you go and have a meeting with the active underwriter, if it's a syndicate or the chief underwriting officer, um, and they say you know. That is it, you know, there's a piece of paper because it's Lloyd's, there's always a piece of paper to sign. So you have to sign and say what your scratch, which is your signature is going to be on the on the, the paper you, you're gonna, uh, the, the policy you're gonna sign. And it's a big thing because you go from uh, basically having no authority, so your job title is on the writer, junior on the writer, assistant on the writer, depending on the companies. So you go from having no authority to suddenly having a huge authority. So I remember my authority went from uh, zero to 25 million, which you know, in, in retrospect, yeah, when you're That's in your twenties, it's a lot of money, and you. You kind of, I spoke to quite a few friends as well who work in banking, and it was a bit the same, like you kind of detach yourself to the reality that, you know, your day-to-day, the money you spend day-to-day is not the same currency as the, you know, 25 million line that you may put on the risk, even though it's the same thing. And um, so... The the first part is actually, and that's where you see the two type of people. You've got some underwriters who then say are very gango and say this is amazing, you know. And basically, what they want to do is stamp every single slip that they receive because they're not they're scratch. And then you see the authors who are like, uh, not that it's any better. Who are so scared that you know they never put their their line down. Um, so it's it's actually once you receive your scratch that the journey starts because you have to realize what kind of underwriter you are and an underwriter you can't be too prudent because if you're too prudent you're not going to write anything you're not going to be successful, but at the same time you oh. you can't be too gung ho and say yes to everything, I mean the. The worst thing is to be known as the underwriters that the brokers will always come to finish their sleep because they know that this guy or this girl will always say yes. Um, so it's uh, it's a very interesting journey to know about yourself and also to the, the best thing. And I think that's where we kind of lost with COVID and, you know, the, the Lloyd's market not being as busy as, as it used to be. I've learned so much from watching other underwriters, like the older underwriters and the way they used to be. And um, it's true that underwriters, some of them used to be a lot ruder to brokers that now you can't do, thankfully, and shouldn't do. Um, But I always found the best underwriters I ever met were the ones who were very humble and were not afraid to ask questions. And um, so that was one thing. Is you know, if you don't know, and even if you think that you should know, it's better to ask the question as an underwriter because you know you. Otherwise, you will. Uh, if you make assumptions, um, it's the wor- worst thing possible in underwriting. Um, and then the the other part was. Uh, to get the business, because underwriting is a very dual job, especially in Lloyd's. Not only do you have to assess the risk and you have to write a profitable book, but you have to make sure that risks that are profitable come to you. So you both have to be the guy that says, you know, no, I'm not going to write this risk or, you know, I'm going to write it at a price that you broker and your client think is going to be too high. But at the same time, you need to You need to attract business. You need to be a salesman. You need to say the brokers need to want to come to you. And what I always tell to um, to uh, uh, junior underwriters, and what I learn is, you can say no to a broker, but you need to say no straight away, and you need to to explain why you're saying no, and not change the narrative later. So you can't say I've been saying no to this risk now because of this but then say yes to a similar risk, even though he had the same features that meant you say no to that risk. And the worst thing you can do, and you see so many underwriters doing that is they ask a lot of questions, hoping that the brokers will then not bother coming back. What they don't realize because they don't, they've never been a broker is that actually the broker's job is to place that risk. So if he, if he gets, has this question he thinks that if he comes back with you know the answers then you the underwriter will then consider writing the risk and you place yourself in a very embarrassing situation and brokers know that um, so that were uh, so basically what I'm trying to say is the the underwriting you keep on learning and you keep, you really have to look at how do people like successful underwriters, how did they become successful? Um, and that was actually the, the the most interesting part for me was when I was uh, the underwriting director at Whitehook, where when you're an MGA, you have also that dual role of, you need to control your underwriting because it needs to be profitable, otherwise you won't have the capacity, but you're also a broker because you need to find the capacity so, you know, that um, you know, syndicates and insurance companies give you capacity to write business. And uh, I met some really, really clever, interesting, active underwriters or CEO then. And I think I learned a lot from them from the way they were operating. And you can really see, it also opened your eyes of how brokers see underwriters because you can see the people who bother to read the presentation. You know, you may have spent like weeks preparing a 30 page presentation and then you can see who's read it or not. And interestingly, having done that, that was also very useful when you speak to investors because it's the same process, you know, in investors and looking for capacity as an MGA, it's kind of similar. So, you know, you spend hours working on the paper and when you meet them, you can see who's read it or or who hasn't um so yeah that was my um my kind of the that was the I think the underwriting journey I think you learn as much and you're always learning even when you're a junior underwriter or when you're a chief underwriting officer you should always learn and there's always uh you know things you can improve definitely Yeah.
0: so it's interesting because you are highlighting that you know to be the right chief underwriting officer or own that underwriting pen one needs to have high integrity need to actually manage strong relationships so you are salesmen too uh you need to treat others very well partly when you work in the commercial lines market which is dependent on the broker channel an intermediary yeah but you also have to be nice Sundays and less nice so when you look at some of the um, more technical skills the underwriter needs to have around making that underwriting choice what are those what are the top 3 for you
1: the um, it's definitely you cannot be an underwriter if you're not analytical i mean i think that's the that's the main thing and that's going back, and being I'm going a bit uh, on, on the tangent here, but people keep saying, like, the writers are going to disappear because of artificial intelligence. I think that's totally wrong. Um, and the, the point of artificial intelligence is that uh, machines are better than human at analysis. That is absolutely right. But machines are still not able to replace uh, humans when it comes to judgment. And um, that's exactly, so like to give you an analogy, when they, um, they introduced artificial intelligence uh, to uh, doctors who were looking at radiography and trying to spot a cancerous tumor, um, the, the AI was much better than uh, the doctors at spotting it. But the best result was when they combined the AI with uh the doctors and that's went from 90 percent to 96 percent or something like this and the point is the the artificial intelligence of the machines are very good at saying statistically there's a high chance that this is something you should check and then the humans are much better at knowing if it's actually truly something that is relevant or not and so it's exactly the same in underwriting i think what's going to improve and what's really exciting is that uh, and you know, the machines can do some analysis and some AI that will say, Mr. Underwriter, we went through this, I don't know, engineering report that's 120 pages, and we think that you should check this, this, and this. And then the underwriter will be able to make the judgment to say, is that relevant or is that not relevant? And so it's all about on the writing, the skills is all about knowing your subject matter and knowing what to look for. Um, it's not gut feel so much because it's experience, yeah. you know. And it's um, so like one of the best on the writers I ever come across was uh, the space on the writer at Tesco's, who used to be um, a space engineer. So he used to actually be involved in building satellites. Uh, a very humble, very very clever guy. Uh, and he, he used to be so good at, because he knows his subject matter so well, he knew exactly what to look for. And he was able to avoid you know, avoid losses by declining risk, but also the justification as to why he declined it was the reason why the risk then had a loss. And you think like, this is the El Dorado from the writing, this is brilliant. On the other hand, you know, an underwriter would say, oh, I, I did so well in my underwriting because there was no hurricane. You know, as a cat underwriter, you can't avoid hurricane. Like, it's it's not the same thing. So I think it's, you know, the skill is knowing your subject matter uh, and being very analytical. Um, and then the, the other skill that is kind of lost is Having a bigger vision, vision of the bigger picture. So it's this whole idea of portfolio management, because it's very easy as an underwriter to concentrate only on the one risk that is front of you, but to actually forget that that one risk is part of a bigger portfolio, and that you need to make sure that that bigger portfolio is homogeneous and you know balanced and will be profitable. So it's. It's part of you know, part analytical, but also part like having this, uh, you know, just not being solely a trader, but being more manager of your own uh, portfolio.
0: So it's interesting because I was, I want now to go into talking a bit more about. Uh, quotech but you know today i think insurance companies must become better underwriters to remain competitive right in in a marketplace which is getting more complex where we actually have access to more data and that data allows us potentially to make better decisions but also to be able to make those decisions faster and i assume in the underwriting world is also about finding the good risk and being able to underwrite them much quicker at the right price which takes me around some of the subjects we already have started to address around underwriting excellence, which is about understanding, pricing, managing the risk, minimizing losses for the business, but also at the same time, you mentioned it, find ways to provide capital to good businesses, such as MGAs. And then it's always finding that balance between profitability and providing adequate protection to customer, insured, and so on and so forth, while being uh, aware of the complexity which is around us. So tell us, how do you, how you came about um, to build Cocheck, And I guess digitizing, underwriting in some ways. Mm.
1: So the, the, the journey, I mean, that, that's something that I always had uh, in the back of my mind, you know, when I started um, underwriting, the first software I was put in front, you you know your mouse was redundant. You had to use the F keys on your keyboard, you know the keys that no one uses anymore, um, and you it was it was making the process very slow. You couldn't record everything. Uh, fast forward to 15 years later, he hadn't really improved much. So the MGA that uh, I was the underwriting for, White Oak used to underwrite uh, U.S. transportation and extended warranty. So the very, very specialized line of business that have um, huge volume of data, huge volume of risk, um, and a lot of uh, different sources of data where you could enrich the data that was coming in. And the problem we had is we, we were finding all these extra sources of data that would actually improve the underwriting process. But there were no system available, no platform available for underwriters that would allow us to bring in through APIs all of these different sources, record them. Uh, and the, the point of digitizing is it's not only bringing all these sources to make the underwriting of that risk better at the time you're underwriting it. But also by recording all of the sources of data that the underwriter looked at at the time of underwriting, you can really refine over time your pricing model because then the the actuaries, instead of making assumptions about what the state of the risk was at the time it was written, they actually would have access to the real data uh, and then they can constantly refine the model, uh, and you could even bring in artificial intelligence into that, et cetera, et cetera. But there's no point talking about artificial intelligence, for instance, till you have digitized the data. yeah, you know that that makes absolutely no sense so that that was really like uh the 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 premise for me was, um, I want a system that is built on the writers. I'm fed up of these legacy systems that basically have been built and doing a very good job for the finance function to be able to report about what has been written, et cetera. But means that you know, 90% of underwriters uh, around the world that write P, uh, PNC lines are using spreadsheets. I mean, you know, that's what I tell our uh, guys at Quotec. They ask me, uh, oh, would you think our biggest competitor is? And uh, quite, you know, uh tongue in cheek had often replied, our biggest competitor is Microsoft Excel, because most underwriters I know are using Excel because Excel is so easy to use. Um, everyone in the insurance industry you speak to think they're an expert on Excel because you know they can do a VLOOKUP. Um and yeah, yeah that that so that was it. the the, the it was really the the birth of Quotec was really born out of the frustration about the systems that were currently available. Um, and that's, that's the gap I identified. And so the idea was first to uh, start uh, my own MGA and use the technology. So for my scenes, uh, I always knew how to code and I've always coded and I basically uh, did the proof of concept. Uh, for uh, U.S. directors and officers. Um, And uh, when I started showing the platform to, you know, ex-colleagues and friends in the market, uh, they were like, well, actually, we think that um, instead of doing the MGA, you know, it's quite hard to manage the MGA and the tech. We think the tech would actually be of great interest to a lot of MGA's and a lot of insurance companies and, and broken houses. So why don't you start a tech firm? Uh, and that is how uh, I made the uh, crazy move of, you know, I think quite a nice career and underwriting to becoming a, a tech entrepreneur.
0: And what I gather from looking at, the capabilities you offer is the main thing is about automating collection analysis of the most relevant data points uh, in each class of business. You provide that for uh, your your client through Quotech, complete audit trail of the data and decision made, and management of different authority levels, risk appetites, and rating models. And what I also Interesting is you actually covering a number of stakeholders from the broker to the underwriters to the actuary and the manager. So can you tell us how you collaborate and work with this ecosystem of different players across a multitude of companies to help them make better underwriting decisions?
1: Yeah, so it's it's um, it, this is where I think we are very different from most of tech firms is because uh, you know because of my background. Uh, as an underwriter, it is much easier for me to uh, speak to underwriters, to speak to actuaries, to speak to the different stakeholder in companies that we work with uh, because, you know, I've worked in the industry for 22 years. So hopefully I kind of know what I'm talking about, but I'm also used to talking to uh, these different stakeholders about their, their work and, you know, when, there are, as you know, full well, Sabine, there are a lot of uh, acronyms in the insurance industry. And just that is a massive barrier to entry. You know, Absolutely. when someone, you know, say like, oh, it's the gross, gross premium or "Yeah, the GWP or, you know, the uh, ILR or the uh, IBNR, etc. if you don't actually know what that means, um, it, you people tend to like, then, you know, it's like, it's kind of like a sect, right? You know, you either understand us and you're with us or you don't understand us and you know, with us. So that's, um, that is how, you know, we interact. So it's basically because of my experience and the idea of growing the company, um, as we're growing the people that are product or client facing, Mm -hmm. uh, we want them to have insurance experience. Whereas the people who are uh, building so all of the developers, we don't want them to have uh, insurance experience because um we want them to know about what needs to be built from an insurance point of view from what we tell them. But we know also that we need insurance experience to know you know what needs to be built and to translate what our clients that we're talking to are telling us that they want um so and then. When we the, the the way we sell our product, it works always much better if we're talking to underwriters, because the Quotec was born out of frustration, or you know my personal frustration, but I know it's a frustration that's shared by many other underwriters in the market. Um, it is much easier to sell the narrative of what we're trying to do and to tell the story of Quotec to people were who, who shared the same frustration because they're like, yeah, that makes total sense. Mm-hmm. And I always remember the um, the you know, as as an entrepreneur, apart if you're totally uh, delusional, you always have the like, you know, am I doing the right thing? Is my company actually solving the problem that I think it is? And you know, you're always constantly like. It's it's not being anxious, or I think it's totally normal, but thinking like, you know, is it, is it right or not? And uh, one of the first time I felt like, okay, I think we're going somewhere is when I was doing a demo to a rather large company and someone rather senior said, Yeah, I can totally see that this platform was built by someone who, you know, by an ex-underwriter, uh, someone you know who knows the industry. And then it's kind of like, you know, you you pat yourself on the back because you're like, that's exactly what we're trying to do. You know, we're trying to, we are the first users of the platform. So we're not like techies who like sort like, oh gosh, insurance company have a lot of money and they seem to do everything on paper. Let's go to the insurance industry and try to sell them stuff. We're more like we know exactly what the pain points are or not all of them obviously but we know what the main uh, pain points are so we can solve that and actually interestingly once you start doing that and talking to people that's when they share their other pain points that they were not potentially able to express but because you've given them the kind of foundation and the start uh, of you know a platform that will solve the main pain point. They say, oh, that's great. Now it does that. You know what would be really good is if also it could do this or it could do that. And that's where you constantly um, improve it. And you know last year was our third year. Well, yeah, our third year of uh, existing in effect. And uh, what was great is we now have enough clients that. Um, are using the platform every day and we're starting to get feedback and ideas that don't solely come from me uh, which is a great thing because it's coming from clients and for me it's great because I look at this as like gosh you know I never thought of that that's a brilliant idea and you know you can't be it it will be really silly to be like uh, you know very proud and saying oh no this idea doesn't come from me therefore you know I'm not going to implement it on the contrary I'm like this is great you know you it's like basically uh, giving birth to a kid and then you know sending him or her to the world and they learn and improve from the experience from others um, so yeah that that's the that's the way we uh, we interact I'm, I don't know if I. Uh, totally answered your question but that's the way we interact with clients
0: it's good particularly in the fact that um one key thing is market is evolving and not staying still and uh being able to be adaptable you know you are leveraging your corporate learning to build a platform which is understood by an underwriter, built by one underwriter himself is, I think, very powerful. It is true, I don't often see many uh, underwriters actually becoming entrepreneurs. And I think we need more of those because there are platforms out there which are definitely looking for uh, individuals with your underwriting acumen to make sure that those platforms are built in the right way. One question which came to mind whilst you were talking is that first, you know, getting customer feedback, underwriter feedback, I think it's part of the entrepreneurial way, lean startup methodology, you know, you're testing, iterating, and that comes from the user at the end of the day regardless what that user is, and it allows us to build better products and services which is aligned to that customer need. Which takes me to the fact that the world is changing again. You know, we talk about sustainability, supply chain risk, urban risk, cybersecurity, digital risk. So what does that mean for the future of underwriting when we look at all those new risks? Uh, areas which have not been underwriting written for and so therefore need probably new practices new data points to actually make yeah decisions
1: and that's um is it's really really interesting from an underwriting point of view because um so it goes back to um When you meet an underwriter, they will tell you that the line of business they do is very different from every other line of business that has been done in insurance or will ever been done. And then they will tell you that the way they underwrite is very different from the way all their peers underwrite. Both of these statements are mainly wrong. Um, You know, the the idea of underwriting is actually... um, it's the, the pricing and the rating is not as important as the risk selection and defining your risk appetite. And then uh, the way people on the right, it basically, if you take every single line of business in the London market and you went back to Wu train Wu, if you went back up, I think it will be for every line of business, one or two people that he goes back to that have trained basically everyone else. And because the, the methodology has to be quite similar. So when you've got a new risk, what you've got to understand is what data can I look at? Is there any historical data? But not only historical data, is there any model that will help me to predict what the future state is going to be? And then it's understanding what are the different uh, data points that will help me with my risk selection. And it's not only the pricing, as I said, it's really the reselection. So I, I remember when um, I was a kidnapping ransom the underwriter and there were uh, the uh, Somalian pirates starting taking uh, hijacking boats of uh, the Gulf of Aden. Now, it's not like, you know, we're not talking like risk, like cybersecurity or, you know, uh, you know, urban risk or something like this, but it was still, a new risk where there were hardly any, any historical data um, and uh, we didn't really know which data points to look at. So basically what we did is um, we we knew that it was going to be a great market uh, and that we needed to be involved and also because at the time at least we were a worldwide leader in kidnap and ransom, we couldn't really shut our doors and saying, no, we're not going to underwrite piracy because every, every broker was coming to us with piracy inquiries. So we spoke to a lot of people about you know, what are the vessels that are the most likely to be hijacked, uh, learned a lot about the Somalian pirates, their modus operandi, what they had, et cetera. And we came out with, uh, in this most simplistic way, I mean, the, the rating model was a bit more complex, But two data points that will make a risk insurable or uninsurable. Speed of the vessel, because if the speed was more than 12 knots, then the vessels could go quicker than the skiffs used by the Somalian pirates. And uh, the height of the freeboard. The freeboard is the distance between the water and the lowest point of the deck. If the freeboard was more than four meters, then uh, the vessel was very unlikely to be hijacked. The reason why it's four meters is because the ladders that the pirates were carrying on their skiffs were four meters high. So if you had something that was more than four meters, it was nearly impossible for them to climb on top. And so, you know, it doesn't have to be, what I'm trying to say is it doesn't have to be super complex, you know, what you're looking at. It just, like these data points, just have to be something that you can collect easily. Now, the beauty for vessels is that the speed and uh, the freeboards are recorded uh, on Mm -hmm. all vessels. And then you need to learn also that there are two types of freeboards, because there's the freeboard when the vessel is empty and the freeboard when the vessel is full, because obviously when it's heavier, the freeboard is lower. Um, So that and that allowed us to write i think it was crazy we wrote like in six months 40 million dollars at a loss ratio of five percent or something like this it, it was like incredible times but it's all to do with like knowing the subject matter and finding these, um you know the the, the right elements so obviously it's much harder for cyber insurance uh it will be much harder for urban risk, but there are models that that exists like this. And um, one of the company that uh, we resell the data of, because you know, Quotec is both a software provider and a data resell company. Um, it's a company called Disaster Aware Enterprise. And the data they, uh, they use is, um, is uh, uh, done and collated by something called the Pacific Disaster Center. The Pacific Disaster Center is um, funded by the federal government. And uh, their main client are the US federal government, all the federal agencies, uh, army, navy, uh, the space uh, agency, NASA. Um, They also uh, have the UN as a client, 67 countries from the UN. And they started selling this uh, data to companies. And what they are, they're early warning system of um, risk that uh, are likely to happen or have happened. So, to give you an idea, there was an earthquake about two years ago in Haiti. Within three minutes, there was a report on the Oval Office uh, explaining the what the earthquake was, uh, what was the magnitude of the earthquake, uh, the uh, the population exposed, how many people were exposed to it, and also uh, the cost of the infrastructure and habitation uh, wow. that were exposed to it. And what they do, this uh, the Pacific Disaster Center, is they also work on the impact of climate change. So they work with NASA and they work with uh, Stanford and Harvard and other uh, universities and they've basically used their own database of historical data, and uh, you know the the database on population, on everything, all of their algorithm, and they've done it with everything that NASA is saying about like a rising sea level, etc., to make a picture of every square inch of Earth, and like how much of it will be under sea um, seawater in 2050. Now. So what I'm trying to say is all of that data exists you know i think sometimes insurance is too blinkered you know people in insurance are not trying to look for you know that data like for instance disasterware enterprise we are an exclusive reseller in the insurance industry because you know i found them because i was looking for it and i find it extraordinary that no one else in the insurance industry you know, came across them and is using them and everyone is using, you know, models that look at like past hurricanes and past flooding. But that has no indication of what's going to happen in the past. I mean, like, you know, the world is changing so rapidly. Um, I mean, as a funny anecdote, when uh, the Pacific Disaster Center showed me what um, the Caribbean will look like and especially the Bahamas in 2050, uh, my plan of uh, selling Quotec and retiring in the Caribbean was suddenly thrown out of the window, unfortunately. And, and you know, it, it, I mean, it's quite scary, like actually the, the rising sea levels and uh, the increase of flood, but all of these, you know, all of that data, everything that's required is there. I mean, you know, there is, so that that's one thing. And I think also the mistake that, um, some underwriters make is they think that the model has to be exact. You know, no model is exact, it's just an indication. Yeah. Like, you know, be it a business plan that you give, a financial model that you give to investors, a model to underwrite, it's not exact, but you need to start somewhere on something that actually makes sense and that that you can keep on improving. Yeah. So you know, going back to Paris-y, um, we had one of the loss we had was a car carrier. Now, car carriers are both super fast and have super high free bolt. So we we're like, how did that happen? Like, you know, how did they even go in? It's because one of the doors, so if you look at the car carriers, it looks like a building. <laughs> one of the doors that was three meters from the water hadn't been closed down and was like flapping in the wind the pirate saw that, went for it, put it in and entered the vessel through that. So, you know, it meant, does that mean that our model wasn't exact? Well, yes and no. Uh, it was exact because actually had the door been closed, you know, we wouldn't have had a loss. But the point of insurance is you still need to be there to pay for these cases that are out of, you know, the other area. You can't you can't build a product that will guarantee zero loss. One, you'd be in trouble with the FCA. But also, how are you going to sell it? You know, yeah. it needs to be there to cover the cases that fall outside of it. And I think that's that's one of the issue of some of the writers. You know, they would love to write cyber insurance, for instance, if they were guaranteed not to have any loss. Yeah. But then you're like, but that's not the point of insurance, that's you know problem. that.
0: And it's what creates often a bad reputation of insurance, where yeah. uh, the Day, it's about portfolio management and, uh, you know, the big group and the well underwritten uh, risk paying for those which were likely and uh, ended up having the risk. And what I find also interesting is recognition that at the end of the day, today, it's about looking at a lot of different data points and actually really understanding your risk and potentially going into your risk itself. That's why I guess the field of risk engineering has been uh, expanding, I assume, where one can go and visit the risk experience the risk, you know, probably sit and look at it and say, well, maybe those criteria become much more valid criteria to look at than the one we have right now. Yeah. But one thing I want to know now, uh Guillaume, is where is Kotec going? And a few, you know, in a few words, where are you going? Where are you currently working? Which market are you investigating? Um, and you know the number of clients you're already working with. You already mentioned that you're working with a number of insurers already.
1: So um so where are we going? Uh as I said, there's no perfect financial model, so I'm taking a crystal ball, uh, but no, we at the moment where uh, we solely have clients in the London insurance market. Um, and this is a fantastic thing that we have, as you know, full well, Sabine, is, you know, by working in London in the insurance industry, we are in the center of it like there is not a single international insurance company or reinsurance company that is not uh in london um the future for us will definitely be to go to the us uh, and europe and australia and potentially south africa um but we're really concentrating on london uh at the moment and by london i mean uh, the uk um the The clients we have at the moment range from a one man MGA uh, to two very large clients. So we've got a large insurance company, Convex, as a client, and we also have uh, Howden uh, as a client. Very innovative
0: companies, indeed.
1: Yeah. So it's a wide range. And also, what I really did want to do was to specialize in one line of business because I truly believe that, you know, if you, you need what we want to do is to give the tools to as many underwriters and brokers as possible to be able to do their job better and more efficiently and um i i don't think you need to specialize in uh, some lines of business what i'm really amazed that we've managed to do and it's it's more due to the luck of the clients that came in to see us more than anything is we've done uh so we've done transportation. Uh, we've done uh, specialty lines, so a lot of crisis management lines of business. Uh, so kidnap and ransom, uh, personal accident, terrorism, active assailant, all that kind of uh, lines. We've done property uh, and we've done aviation, uh, marine uh, and liability. So we've really like covered a full range. So we've had clients from a full range uh of uh, different lines of business and you know um uh as lloyd's will call them the generic lines of business which to me is a great proof that actually we can do all the pnc lines um and and that's you know that's what we want to show to everyone is you don't need to buy a platform that is specialized for marine or a platform that's specialized for aviation you can buy one that actually. can do everything. It's more the way you configure it. Yeah. Uh, and it's more the data that you, uh, you want to bring in. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know the, the, the middle office and back office processes are very similar across the lines of business. What's different is the data you collect, but even across lines of business, the data you collect is also very similar.
0: Powerful. So ending our podcast session, Guillaume, where can people find you?
1: So uh, they can find us by going to our website or uh, on our LinkedIn page. Uh, We do a data diary uh, every month that people can uh, subscribe to, which is nothing to do with uh, technology, but it's more what we found about uh, what's happening with data in the market. I mean, I think uh, our conversation was clear that, you know, for us data is the most important thing in insurance uh, that's the thing that everyone is concentrating on and everyone's working on and that's what we're trying to improve you know collection analysis storing automation of data flows etc um and otherwise um my contact details are on linkedin uh and uh, you can find me at guillaume at io.
0: wonderful so merci beaucoup guillaume Bonissant. And um, Merci, Sabine. The plaisir, le mien. and uh, we look forward to getting some updates as to how Quotech is doing. Thank I'm you.
1: Looking forward to coming back. Thank you.
0: If you like this podcast, subscribe now, share with your friends. And if you enjoyed it, please give it a five-star review. Also, if you want to cover any specific subject with me, contact me on Instagram under Sabine VDL Officials or LinkedIn under Sabine Van Der Linden. Thank you.